Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, and I want to welcome you all here to this book forum today. The center is sponsoring the forum. Um, we're here to mark the publication and the release of a new book by Richard Epstein from the University of Chicago entitled How Progressives Rewrote the Constitution. Uh, the progressive era marked a fundamental shift in the climate of ideas in America, uh, whereas earlier generations had thought of government uh, as a necessary evil. The progressives saw government as an institution uh, through which to solve all manner of what they took to be social and economic problems. The only uh, problem standing in the way of the effort to use government to do that was, of course, the constitution of limited government and the willingness of judges to enforce the limits set forth in that document. The things uh, came to a head in the uh, New Deal, uh, especially after Roosevelt's infamous threat to pack the court with six new members. There was the famous switch in time that saved nine, and uh, the court began rewriting the Constitution without benefit of constitutional amendment. No Unfortunately, <laughs> Unfortunately, there was no work still in print that discussed this story in the detail that we had hoped, and so um, we commissioned a book to do that. Two years ago, I invited uh, Richard Epstein to give the B. Kenneth Simon Lecture at the Cato Institute at our annual Constitution Day conference, uh, and we decided that a subject for that, a good subject, would be how progressives rewrote the Constitution. He gave that lecture and then decided to turn the lecture into a much more ample discussion of the matter, and that is the genesis of the book. And so we are here today to hear how uh, progressives did indeed rewrite the Constitution. Now, let me uh, go through the drill. Uh, Richard will speak for about 20 minutes, uh, and then we will have comment on his uh, remarks and on the book from uh, Professor Michael Seidman of Georgetown Law Center. And then Richard will respond for about five minutes. Then we will open up to questions and answers uh, from you. And uh, after that, we will have lunch upstairs. Uh, Richard will uh, uh, sign uh, the books. It is available outside for purchase. And he will autograph it for you uh, if you'd like. Uh, and so do uh, join us uh, for lunch afterward. And now let me- Autograph it also. Yes. <laughs> now let me- <laughs> You can get the uh, the dissent from Michael, yes. Um, let me uh, introduce uh, Richard, and then after that, uh, when uh, before uh, Michael comes, I will uh, introduce him. Uh, Richard Epstein is the um, uh, James uh, Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago. Uh, he is also the Peter and Kristen Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and is an adjunct scholar here at the Cato Institute. He's a graduate of Columbia University, of Oxford, and of the Yale Law School, after which he taught at the University of Southern California and since 1972 has taught at the University of Chicago. He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He has uh, uh, written on every uh, area of the law and uh, expatiated on even more areas than exist. Um, he is the author of um, n uh, 
probably uh, a thousand or more articles by now. And uh, if we can get him to stop, the book numbers will uh, reach that uh, pretty soon as well. Uh, he's probably best known for his book on takings, uh, private property, and the power of eminent domain. But he's also written uh, Forbidden Ground, Bargaining with the State, um, Free Market, um, uh, Free Markets Under Siege is the most recent uh, book. Uh, besides today's book, uh, Skepticism and Freedom. Then <clears throat> I could go on and on with the books he's written. Uh, but I will not. I will end, and I will turn the podium over to Richard. So please, would you join me in welcoming Professor Richard Epstein? Actually, I mean, Mike Seidman and I, we have a connection on this book. Uh, one of the reasons why I decided to write this book is I looked at the treatment of these issues in a very eminent case book written by my colleague Jeff Stone and Cass Sunstein, which Michael and Mark Tushnet are co-authors. And in part, it was a response to the sort of the regnant orthodoxy which is plied upon American students, um, which led me to see if I can give a somewhat different view of the entire subject. I was tempted to start out with the discussion of executive power and how it relates to this, but Roger has sworn me off of that, so the speech that I prepared is now, shall we say, in the ash can, and I shall give a different speech on the way in which it turns out. I cannot tell you at the moment. I know where to begin. I have no idea where it will end. Uh, starting with that sort of confident assertion of knowledge with respect to the subject, Roger is certainly correct when he says that there are basically two major visions of how it is that a government ought to relate uh, to the people whom it governs. And one of those, I think, was pretty much a consistent founding philosophy, and the other turns out to be very much the dominant philosophy that took place in 1937. The first philosophy, in effect, started with the proposition that government was a necessary evil, and so therefore that the presumption should be against government action. How is it that you manage to operationalize that particular element? Well, there are three portions to, or three techniques that you can use, two of which I've discussed in the book, one of which I've not. The first technique is that of separation of powers and checks and balances, which exists at the federal government, which is in fact now under scrutiny in all the debates over the executive power with respect to commanders in chief. We put that to one side. Uh, the second turns out to be a system of federalism where you can find certain enumerated and defined powers in a central government and then have states do the rest of the situation. Uh, the theory is that if you disperse and separate these powers, individuals will have to deal with one and only one government on every kind of issue. And in addition, although it's a modern modification of some of the earlier theories, these state governments will have not only monopoly power over their citizens, but will be in competition with one another so that the way in which you try to deal with sovereign risk at the state level is to support an exit right which allows people to move from one state freely to another to the extent that they do not like what they see. And the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4, which was designed to allow that both for residents on the one hand and for trade on the other, is in effect, I think, a fairly early and explicit acknowledgment of the role that the exit right plays in the way in which you structure a government. And the last element of this, which was in part in the original Bill of Rights and was then radically transformed and expanded in dealing with the 14th Amendment through the famous trio of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, the Due Process Clause, and the Equal Protection Clause, says in effect that even governments at all levels, if they're divided and if they're rendered inefficient, still can put together coalitions. And so that what we have to do is to find a way in which we will guarantee rights of individuals 
at the same time allowing a reconciliation with the need for government. And so then that gets us into the great debate over what is the scope of the police power on the one hand relative to the individual liberties on the other. And in dealing with this issue, I think one of the most striking features about the earliest system of regulation is how accurate it turned out to be in terms of the way in which it used and sorted out government powers. If one were to start looking at the situation from a modern point of view, one of the first questions you would start to ask is when does individual choice on the one hand and voluntary arrangements on the other hand break down as you're trying to put various systems together? And after all the huffing and puffing that we've come up with, essentially we've managed to find two areas in which these voluntaristic notions do not work particularly well. The first of these has to do with the system of externalities. And it's the question of how it is that people engage in certain forms of aggression against other people. They take into account the benefits. They tend to ignore their costs. And in dealing with this, one has to be very careful as to what these definitions are. And in particular, within the neoclassical framework, you distinguish very sharply between the use of fraud and deceit on the one hand and competitive pressures on the other. You have to stop the former. You have to encourage the latter. So the control of force is one of the first functions of government. And the second problem is the one that has to do with the question of coordination of multiple actors. You can identify a number of situations in which everybody would be better off if they could move to state A from state B, but they can't make it there because there are so many people who have to give their consent to a situation that the holdout problem prevents the social improvement. In fact, our friend John Locke, when he talked about the institution of property, did so on exactly those grounds. He said if, in fact, any person had to get the consent of everybody else before he could eat an acorn, rather, eat the fruit from a tree or plant an acorn, we should all starve before anything happened. And so we adopted a system of unilateral taking of property by way of first possession by mixing your labor with the things in question. Now, these two themes are very important in the neoclassical synthesis under the original Constitution as trying to ex explain the scope and the power of federal and state governments. Let me first start with the federalism issue, in which the coordination problems are probably, at least historically, more important than the externality problems, and see the way in which these things start to work. And the first thing that one notes is that if you are trying to figure out how industrial organization ought to take place at the government level, you want to draw a fairly clear distinction between network industries on the one hand and various kinds of competitive industries on the other. And if you go outside, you will see this in action. Earlier this morning, I was speaking at a conference on credit cards, and outside you see Visa, MasterCharge, and any other mode of payment which is available. Classic network industries, which unless you allow people who are potential competitors to collude, quote unquote, with each other, you will never be able to get everybody into the grid. When you're dealing with a federalist system in multiple states, you have exactly the same problem. If it turns out that somebody wants to have a transportation network which goes from the east to the west coast, you have to go across multiple states. If you have a situation in which each state can blockade the transactions that move across its borders, whether it be by way of transportation or by way of communication, that fractionalization will reduce the value of any transportation or communication network that we have. And so it's very clear, like under the old Articles of Confederation, you would want to make sure that states can't stop these things from happening. And it turns out under our Constitution, the federal government is given the general power to make sure that the network is up and running so that it can, in fact, block state action, which would otherwise start to interfere with. 
And that becomes the first element. If you go back and you start looking at cases like Gibbons and Ogden in the way in which this is organized, it seems pretty clear that the classical distinctions in cases like E.C. Knight were adumbrated and warned about and, in fact, adopted by Justice Marshall in the earlier cases. And what he said, in effect, is that we will allow the regulation of an interstate journey we will not allow a regulation of, quote, that commerce which is purely internal to a state, by which he meant that both of the transacting parties in the particular arrangement were within a given kind, within a single state. And the theory here was that the federal government could keep the networks alive, but when it came to something which happened strictly and solely within a single state, there was no reason to have duplicative government. And this, in effect, meant that you could have competitive regulation over manufacture. So if one state had a set of rules which turned out to be relatively heavy-handed and clumsy, individuals could migrate and take their business elsewhere. This particular model on the Federalist point was, in fact, the source of a great deal of anxiety with respect to the way in which the progressives work. And the point, I think, is shown very clearly if one goes back and reads the arguments for and con. One of the most important cases in that transition period when progressivism was strong politically but had not quite taken over the course. And I refer here to Hammer and Dagenhart. And what happened is John W. Davis, later of Davis Polk, later the man who argued the case in Brown v. Board of Education, was a young assistant solicitor general. And he said, unless we have a national statute with respect to child labor laws, we will see a race to the bottom as states will constantly fight one way or another to reduce their child labor statutes, and the nation will lose. Since we know what the right result is, we have to impose this as a national solution. And this proposal that he made, therefore, was that anybody who wanted to ship goods into interstate commerce as a firm had to guarantee that none of its products, whether or not shipped in interstate commerce, were made with child labor. And so essentially, by cutting off the right to trade, which was of enormous value, he could coerce these firms to essentially follow the federal rule with respect to what went on. And the rejection of that argument was essentially a proposition which said that when the federal government controls the network, as it does, it cannot use that control to essentially effectuate the way in which each individual state operates in a competitive market in terms of regulation. And so therefore what happened is he struck down the statute and you now had the North Carolina statute govern North Carolina children and the Washington state statute govern that. Now one of the interesting things about this is the progressives deplored this particular result because of what they perceived to be the race for the bottom. They were generally widely and perhaps completely oblivious to the way in which things were working on the ground. Those of us who've thought about child labor laws would say, look, if a parent wants to sell its child into prostitution or slavery, that's the kind of situation which is a breach of guardianship and maybe some state intervention is appropriate. But we don't think that that's the dominant case. Rather, we think the dominant case is a parent is trying to figure out how to manage household production and income, and to the extent that there's greater wealth that is obtainable by parental labor, you'll see less child labor. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. At the time that the progressives were insisting that there was a need for a national statute on child labor, the amount of child labor was going down very rapidly throughout all sectors of the United States as a function of the increased prosperity associated with the economic system. So it is a situation in which the race to the bottom model seems to me to be completely inappropriate and that local regulation will outperform the national stuff. When the progressives decided to do the Commerce Clause number, it was very clear what their ambitions were. 
they thought that state competition was a bad, just the way competition amongst individual firms was a bad, and that national regulation was necessary precisely because of what the neoclassical liberals thought on the issue, which is that if it were done at the state level, people will simply exit and go somewhere else. And as you start to look at the major forms of regulation, what you can see in effect is that they all serve one and only one end. They are designed to prop up various kinds of monopolistic institutions which would not be able to surprise, survive if you had competing sovereigns. Let me just mention two particular cases on this issue. The first of these cases has to do with the National Labor Relations Act. And what this is concerned with is whether or not you have collective bargaining at a national level. And to the extent that you have this at the state level, firms that don't want to labor under this situation will relocate. The national situation was thought to be appropriate to stop this, and all of a sudden, it didn't have to be that the transaction was which one was in interstate commerce, which is a relatively small but important class of cases. Now all you had to show was that the transaction affected interstate commerce, and that essentially covered everything. So that instead of having a set of limited and fixed federal powers, all of a sudden the Commerce Clause became completely exhausted. The second case was Wickard and Filburn, and it was exactly the same argument. It turned out the United States Department of Agriculture and its wisdom wanted to keep the price of grain in the United States at $1.16 a bushel when the world price was 40 cents. And the only way you could do that was to make sure that you have a womb-to-tomb form of regulation, which they duly imposed. First, you regulated the amount of goods that could be shipped or the prices of goods shipped in interstate commerce. Then you regulated the price of goods shipped in local commerce. Then you regulated the use of your own grain to feed your own cows. And sure enough, Justice Jackson, in an opinion which could be described as only whimsical, fanciful, and immensely influential, decided that when you fed your own grain to your own cows, you were engaged in interstate commerce. It was absolutely correct from, the, from essentially the progressive point of view, which said that industrial organization on a monopoly model was appropriate. There is no way you can do that in a system of competitive federalism. But if you were a neoclassical, this would be liberal, this would be the judgment that you would make. Constitutions are instruments for permanent adjudication and organization. We know from bitter and profound experience that in general competition outperforms monopoly. It is perfectly appropriate to introduce structural situations which tilt the balance in favor of the competition rather than the monopoly model. We do not want to leave those issues to the political process. That's the structural justification. The textual justification is that nobody made more hash of what Justice Marshall said in Gibbons and Ogden than what Justice Jackson said in Wickard and Filburn. And it is interesting to note that when the American left talks about this issue, they never want to say that there was a great constitutional transformation because that puts the issue of legitimacy into question. They always want to say that there's a perfect continuity between a decision which stood for everything that the earlier decision did not. And one of the things I try to do in the book is to explain how it was that the text actually moved. To give you an idea, if Gibbons and Ogden is correct, then it turns out for that you can't, of course, regulate the price of grain that uh, English farmers will be able to pay to English manufacturers. But if, in fact, the Foreign Commerce Clause is read like the Domestic Commerce Clause, I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that the American Constitution gives us the, the power to regulate whether or not English farmers can feed their own grain to their own cows, because it's quite clear that that action will influence the world price of grain, which will affect American farmers and consumers, and so therefore is within the scope of the foreign commerce power. Nobody has ever had the temerity to make the argument on the foreign side. It was, of course, interesting to note that on the domestic side, it was 
Marshall, who stressed the parallels between foreign and interstate commerce. Now, turning to the other issue having to do with individual liberties, it is not the case for the most part that private property and the takings clause was dominant during this period, although the issue started to surge, to, to surge towards the end of it. It mainly had to do with the powers for regulation of wages and prices in various markets. And here, for the most part, the neoclassical guys got it right. Essentially, they said that the ability to regulate the kinds of prices that can be charged consistent with the Due Process Clause, the Equal Protection Clause, the Contracts Clause, all of them lead in the same direction, were those industries that had clear monopoly power, of which regulated industries with explicit franchises would be the leading example, but taking their cue from the English cases, um, having to do with affected with the public interest, they also are willing to allow the regulation of rates of natural monopoly, which is essentially the right position. There is a huge debate as what's the best way to do that, or indeed whether it's worth doing at all, but for the most part that has taken place at the sub-constitutional level. The real battle went on to the other side of the question as to whether or not you could regulate competitive labor markets, which was the dominant issue, I think, of political organization in the first part of the century. And on that particular question, again, the old guys in the Lochner court got it much closer to the truth than the newer ones. Let me see if I could explain why. Well, the first thing you had to do is to ask whether or not you would be willing to allow state statutes to, or federal statutes to impose mandatory collective bargaining situations. I use the word mandatory because there is an obligation under these statutes for an employer to negotiate in good faith with a set of employees. I notice that all the defenders of labor statutes always talk about free collective bargaining, reflecting not the duty to bargain, but the fact that the government doesn't set the terms. And first Justice Harlan, who was a sort of an inconsistent libertarian, and then Justice Pitney, who was again an inconsistent libertarian, both struck down these statutes on the theories that the efforts to try to regulate the terms under which labor is exchanged is not covered under any of the traditional head of the police power. It is not a form of health regulation. It is not safety regulation. It certainly isn't morals regulation. And you can't see any general welfare that's coming out of it. So labor statutes were outside the traditional heads of the police power. And therefore, you saw the consistent neoclassical pattern in which competitive labor markets were preferred at a constitutional level for the same reasons I mentioned before over monopolistic kinds of practices. And the second portion of the battle had to do pretty much with safety. And here again, I want to start with sort of the modern insight in international free trade, which is follows. Everybody who's in favor of free trade across national borders knows that it is not appropriate to take grapes loaded with strychnine from Chile and to bring them into the United States. Every American producer of grapes knows how wonderful it is to allege that these grapes are so contaminated in order to keep them out on health grounds when, in fact, their true interest turns out to be that of anti-competitive practices. The basic problem that one has to face in this particular market, therefore, is when you see various forms of global restrictions, are these really designed to protect the health or are they indirect fetters on competition? If the former, then you would have to let them go if the means are not wildly excessive, and if the latter, what you do is you strike them down. The case about Lochner against New York is essentially a case on the cusp. What this case said, in effect, is we are going to impose a maximum hour statute of 10 hours per day, 60 hours per week, on certain kinds of bakers. And the question of whether or not this was designed to protect the health of the bakers or whether or not it was designed to essentially disadvantage certain forms of production as against others. The record itself is relatively unclear, but anybody who's read David Bernstein's heroic expose of what's going on there knows that, in fact, the anti-competitive side of this thing absolutely dominated. 
The first thing to understand about bakers is that those in the regulated firms slept on the job. What they did is they worked, slept, and got up and finished the job. And the reason we know that from the statute is that the section before the maximum hours statute is, in fact, a statute which regulates ventilation in sleeping quarters for people who work on the job. And what happens, therefore, is these bakers were working 15-hour days and sleeping six of them, as opposed to the union bakers, which worked two separate shifts. The disparate impact of a facially neutral statute was perfectly apparent. Justice Peckham, who came from that part of New York, knew what was going on. But following the traditions of the day, did essentially nothing to stop. Uh, rather, following the traditions of the day, did nothing to state why it was that this statute was, in fact, inappropriate by way of the detailed examination. He just simply announced that it was a labor statute rather than a health statute, close to the cusp, closer than the other cases. People like Justice Harlan voted the other way on Lochner, and I think rather unpersuasively. But my point here is simply to say that the distinction is principled, and so long as the distinction is principled, the line that you're going to have to draw will be wavy in some cases. You just live with it. The progressives, of course, their attitude is you want to stop health risk, that's wonderful. You want to stop competition in labor markets, that's wonderful. Why do you have to draw the line? And so again, I guess the question that I would put to Michael and to everybody else in thinking about this is if you really believe that competition and monopoly are interchangeable social consequences in which sometimes one's better and sometimes the other's better as a generic matter, putting aside the network industries and putting aside the patents and so forth, then you would favor what the progressives did as a matter of principle. And I think, in effect, they're wrong on principle. And then there's the second question about what about text. And it seems to me that given the fact that we know the characters who drafted this thing, both at the time of the founding and also at the time of the... Um, civil rights amendments and so forth. They were all faction types, small government types and so forth. So that the textual problem, I think, is quite clear. One of the reasons our Constitution was, maybe is, a great document is that the people who wrote it meant what they said and said what they meant. The great achievement of the progressives was to do what they wanted, notwithstanding what was written nor intended. Thank you. Thank you, Richard, for coming in right on time. We're now going to, uh, uh, we're, we're with twice as many words as would normally be found in that amount of time. Um, we're now going to uh, have um, a comment from uh, Professor um, Seidman. Um, Michael Seidman is the John Carroll uh, Research Professor of Law at the uh, George, Georgetown Law Center. He's a graduate of the College of the University of Chicago and um, yes, indeed, we have three Chicago people up here, and uh, and he received his law degree from Harvard. After which he clerked for J. Skelly Wright uh, on the D.C. Circuit, and um, then uh, for uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall on the United States Supreme Court. Uh, he has uh, after that he was in the D.C. Public Defender Service until he joined the law faculty at uh, Georgetown in 1976, where he has specialized in constitutional law and criminal law. He um, is the co-author of a case book on constitutional law. He has written uh, voluminously in this area. Uh, among his two recent books are one called Our Unsettled Constitution, The Defense of Constitutionalism and Judicial Review uh, from Yale University Press in 2001 and in 2002 from the Foundation Press, a book called Equal Protection of the Laws. Please welcome Michael Seidman.
Thank you, Roger. I'd, I'd like to thank uh, Cato for inviting me here and, and Richard for providing the occasion for being here. I have to say I, I take special pleasure in hearing my work uh, characterized as part of the regnant orthodoxy. That That's not... Regnant, not regnant. Yeah, right. That's not the way it is uh, normally described. My, my own wife regularly describes my views as uh, crazy. Um, so... So uh, I say thank God for Cato. It's only here that my views would be treated as orthodox. Um, I have to say it's a little tough to know where to begin. Um, my, my good sense tells me the right place to begin is not with Professor Epstein's uh, political and economic theory. Uh, Professor Epstein has developed that theory with great intelligence and energy, over many years, and I have no illusions that I'm going to change his mind about it at this stage of his career. Um, his views about these matters have many of the characteristics of a closed system. Um, um, they are uh, quite well defended, I think, against internal critique and completely oblivious to external critique. And, of course, I'm not unaware of the fact that um, the views of most people attending this event give him a considerable home field advantage. And so I just don't think uh, in the time allotted there's reason for much optimism that we can make a whole lot of progress on that score. Uh, on the other hand, I do think we could have a more fruitful dialogue about what Professor Epstein alluded to at the very end of his talk, and that is um, his constitutional theory. Um, that's a, so because I, I suspect at least that theory is less central to his core commitments because I detect some ambivalence on his part on the constitutional level, although I might be wrong about that, and because even within the confines of his own system, I think it can be shown that he's making a mistake on that score. So what I intend to do is to devote most of my time to constitutional rather than political or economic theory. However, lest I be taken to acquiesce, and frankly, because I can't resist, but <laughs> Nonetheless, against my better judgment, I want to take just a moment to express, without quite arguing for, uh, my disagreement on the political and economic level. So, for me, the right place to start is not with Lockean theory or classical economics. The right place to start is with the brute fact that the people who have done very well in our society, including, I should say, most of the people in this room, uh, do not in any strong sense deserve their good fortune. Um, and more to the point, the people who have not done well, who have lost out in competitive markets and who will live shorter and worse lives because they have lost out, do not deserve their fate either. I believe that is a great and growing injustice and that any political or economic theory has to take that injustice as its central concern. Um, when progressivism is viewed from that vantage point, I must say the record is somewhat mixed. Some progressive programs were and are misconceived, badly executed, or just plain stupid. Others, in my judgment, have made important contributions to the creation of a more humane and just society. We need to be pragmatic and smart going forward and thinking about what kinds of government programs are doable and really work. The crucial point, though, is that at its core, progressivism is and was concerned with the problem of distribution and redistribution that, by my lights, lies at the heart of social justice. Um, and that is more than can be said 
for the defenders of property rights in Lockean contractarian theory who have objected to redistributive programs at every turn. To take but one example from recent days, when the history of our time is written, it will show that it was not progressives who favored the restrictions on desperately needed health care for the young, poor, and disabled so as to fund obscene tax cuts for billionaires and a pointless and brutal bloodbath in Iraq. Uh, the leaders who made those decisions were supported by conservatives and by libertarians, and I think conservatives and libertarians ought to be deeply ashamed of that support. I could go on like that, but I suspect I've already said too much on that score. <laughs> So let me turn to constitutional theory. Most, I think this may be my last invitation here. <laughs> Most libertarians have thrown their lot in with constitutional textualists, structuralists, or originalists who believe that in one form or another, constitutional law consists of mapping decisions made by the founders onto our modern situation. Now, as I say, I detect some ambivalence on Professor Epstein's part concerning his commitment to that view, but especially at the end of his book, he seems to embrace it. I want to argue that from his own perspective and from the perspective of other libertarians and classical liberals and conservatives, that's a serious mistake. In order to see the problem, we need to distinguish between two questions that we might expect constitutional law to answer. The first is this. What institutions and legal commitments are best calculated to produce a just society? The second question, sometimes confused with the first, but importantly different, is this. In a society where people are in fundamental disagreement about justice, what institutions and legal commitments will allow peaceful coexistence on fair terms? Now, it's, a hard, it's itself a hard question, which of these questions is the right one to ask, but fortunately for my argument, we don't have to get to the bottom of that here because originalism and textualism are not the right answer to either of those questions. Suppose we start with the first question. I think that the answer Professor Epstein should give is pretty obvious. From his perspective, the institutions and political commitments most likely to produce a just society are those that ensure a sharply limited state, the protection of private property, and a right to personal freedom to the extent, extent that the exercises of that freedom don't harm other people. Now, Professor Epstein would have us believe that, as luck would have it, these are precisely the commitments that the framers entrenched in our own Constitution. I'm going to come back in a minute to whether that is, that's true, but the important point, point for present purposes is that whether it's true or not, that fact does not support a commitment to originalism. In order to determine whether one's fundamental loyalty is to originalism or to something else, one has to imagine, perhaps counterfactually, that the Constitution, in its original form, envisions a form of government that is contrary to one's commitments. Only if one would privilege such a Constitution over those commitments can one say that one is loyal to the Constitution rather than the commitments that it's loyalty to the Constitution rather than the commitments that's driving the outcome. But still assuming we're asking the first question, surely it would be wrong for Professor Epstein to pri privilege, say, a statist or a socialist constitution over classical liberalism. If we want to have a just society, then it's trivially, trivially obvious 
that we need just principles to govern that society, and a constitution with unjust principles doesn't move us in the right direction. Now, to be sure, there's a response to this line of argument. If the choice is between an unjust society and a war of all against all, most people would prefer the former. So if the rejection of originalism were likely to produce a war of all against all, the choice of originalism might still be defended. More realistically, Professor Epstein might believe that even if the original constitution is unjust in some respects, on the whole, it's better than any likely alternative that would replace it. Those possibilities make the argument a little more complicated, but they don't really change the result. With regard to the first possibility, it's unlikely in the extreme that a rejection of originalism would produce social chaos. We know this because the justices on our actual Supreme Court regularly reach non-originalist outcomes, and we're not close yet, yet at least, to a war of all against all. Similarly, with regard to the second possibility, there's no reason to suppose that non-originalist but libertarian justices could not move the country at least marginally toward libertarianism without producing a backlash that would make things worse. In any event, even if I'm wrong about all that, the judgment that originalism produces a more classically liberal constitution than its likely alternatives is necessarily historically contingent. Um, it's important to emphasize again that one who embraces originalism for that set of reasons is not really embracing originalism. Uh, such a person is not committed to originalism per se, but rather to a reading of the Constitution that best advances his substantive objectives, which at a particular time and place might be originalist, but in another time and place would not be. Suppose we try to answer the second question. Does originalism provide a basis for fair cooperation among people who disagree about what is just? I think that a classical liberal has to answer that question, no. The basis for fair cooperation, a classical liberal would say, is an expansive private sphere where people can decide for themselves what is just. Such a sphere might or might not be protected by the original meaning of any particular constitution. Moreover, even if one is not a classical liberal, it's very hard to understand why insisting on a particular set of political views held several centuries ago by people long dead provide a fair basis for cooperation on the part of living people, some of whom reject those commitments. My own view, which I've set out at length elsewhere but will only allude to here, is that an unsettled constitution that leaves interpretation of our political commitments up for grabs is one that provides the best and fairest basis for cooperation among people who disagree. Um, whether that's true or not, it seems to me that regardless of which question one asks, a classical liberal of Professor Epstein's stripe should not be a textualist or an originalist. Still, one might object that even if this is in some sense true on the level of deep theory, it makes very little difference. If our actual constitution, in fact, embodies classical liberal ideals, then it hardly matters whether classical liberals embrace the ideals themselves or the document that contains the ideals. I think, nonetheless, that it does matter for two reasons, one of which I offer for Richard's benefit and the other for my own. For Professor Epstein's benefit, if one is a classical liberal and takes a rhetorical stance favoring originalism, 
then one must vigorously defend the proposition that the original meaning of the, con of the Constitution is, in fact, classically liberal. But any serious historian will tell you that the intent of the framers and the original meaning of their words is complicated, contradictory, fairly contestable, and in some deep sense unknowable. So originalism forces liberals like Epstein into tendentious law office history that discredits their cause and that, from their own point of view, is deeply beside the point. Now, finally, a plea on behalf of people like me who don't agree with Professor Epstein. If, as I contend, originalism is not consistent with his own deepest commitments, then it's unfair for Professor Epstein to beat people like me around the head and shoulders for advancing constitutional arguments that are not originalist. What's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. If Professor Epstein is willing to privilege his own political philosophy over constitutional meaning, and I think he should be, uh, then he must allow me to privilege mine. And once we get over that hurdle, then we can begin talking about the question that really matters and that really does divide the two of us, and that is what philosophy stands the best chance of producing the kind of society that we both would like to live in. Um, that, of course, would be a much longer conversation than this one, but unfortunately, we're going to have to postpone that for another occasion. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Michael. We're now going to hear uh, a response from Richard for about five minutes, and we're going to then open up questions from all of you very fortunate people in this audience. Thank you, Michael. Um, let me start uh, with the first of the points about how we deal with the issues of redistribution and luck. One of the interesting things about this book is the towel on that question was actually thrown in in the pre-1937 period. Uh, progressive taxes were widely upheld and so forth. I don't want to defend those positions. I think they were erroneous, but I think one ought to at least acknowledge the fact that not I did not once use that particular word there and, in fact, have a rather different view on the subject. Generally speaking, it is widely inefficient and counterproductive to try to deal with questions of redistribution by mucking up with the substantive means of production. And so that the last way in which you will get any sensible redistributive result is to sort of create these state monopolies of the sort that were there. This was an argument about two sorts of constitutional provisions, the federalism provisions and the commerce provisions on the one hand, and about the individual liberties provisions on the other as they relate to the competition and monopoly issue. Michael is quite right. Redistribution is a third variable. I think in general the right answer is you start with progressive taxes. You may deal with welfare kinds of programs. Interestingly enough, I did not wish to or attack those issues in the book. Uh, the second point about this is I, I think Michael is wrong. I, I guess I've spent more time than I care to mention to figure out whether or not the system is simply closed and deductive or whether or not it can meet the sort of substantive objections that you want to raise against it. I've written on multiple occasions about the role that luck plays in the organization of human affairs. I agree with him to some extent that there are certainly cases of people who do badly in competitive circumstances um, and have bad luck and other people have undeserved goods. But that is not going to be the decisive response in these cases. If you're trying to figure out what the overall system is going to look like in terms of 
of its production. Remember, you could have bad luck under monopoly and good luck under monopoly. The point about it is when you run an all-in-one derby about the question of who gets the franchise, there's not only luck that's involved, it's corruption and all sorts of venality that are there. And one of the things that one tries to do with competitive and not markets is to reduce the scope of luck by having decentralized authority so there's no one with the power of permit but the power to destroy. All right, the third thing is one would like to hear on the substantive level, before we get to the philosophical question, a statement of which of the programs that I'm prepared to strike down relentlessly, Michael would be prepared to defend on its substantive merits. That is, you have to tell me why you believe in a minimum wage or a maximum hour law, or why you want to have agricultural subsidies, collective bargaining, all the rest of that stuff. I don't think I heard that. Then the last question I want to talk about, just very briefly, is the relationship of originalism um, to, on the one hand, a commitment of classical liberalism. And it's quite clear that the Constitution and the uh, principles overlap like this. As I said in the book, one of the reasons why one is deeply suspicious of the foreign commerce power is if you go back and you see the arguments that Hamilton made in favor of it was that he thought that the ability to regulate foreign commerce was in effect the ability to rig national markets and to set tariffs against imports. Now my view is originalism surely would have to recognize that particular power and my classical liberalism would have to deplore it. So my sense is that I'm not trying to defend that part of the Constitution. Uh, take other things. There is a three-fifths clause. It's perfectly clear what it says. I don't think that any commitment to originalism uh, would lead me to dispute what it meant, but on the other hand, it did not survive, and I'm not trying to figure out how you reconcile that with a classical liberal position. So that the issue one has to face is if you look at the various provisions that I center on, where is the actual disconnect that you can see between the two of them? Let me just mention one issue which I think actually shows the profound difference between a hardline libertarian position and a classical liberal position in connection with the takings clause. If one goes back to Locke, the rule was that property could not be taken from individuals without his consent, or was it with their consent? He had a terrible problem of trying to figure out whether or not individual choice or majority will should determine whether or not collective force was going to be imposed, and he shifts pro the pronouns around at critical points in his argument. The one thing that is clear about the Just Compensation Clause is that consent is no longer in any way, shape, or form the operative question as to whether or not you could take. Now you've got just compensation and you have public use. This means, in effect, that you have a government which can now tolerate forced exchanges. And the realm of forced exchanges, as I try to develop in my takings book, is one of the most complicated areas that is possible. But the only way you'll understand it is in terms of a basic theory. How do we know that this is the case? Well, one of the things I like to do is I always tease my colleague Jeff Stone, whose theories on the First Amendment are identical to mine on the takings clause, in the sense that he acknowledges that, you know, presumption of liberty and half of speech, then you could regulate for collective action problems, antitrust kinds of problems, negative externality problems. And essentially, in order to keep the commitment for liberty alive, what you have to do is to make sure that each of these justifications don't swell over. There is a fundamental question here, which is how do you deal with all of those things and the question of redistribution? My own view is, in the hard line, is that anyone who wants to play the redistribution game by explicit government coercion is facing a mugs battle. By the time he's done, it's always the wrong people who will get the redistribution, farmers through subsidies and all the rest of that stuff. Don't want to go there. 
But if you do want to go there, you don't want to go there by mucking around with direct forms of production. I put that question in brackets in this particular case. I'm willing to debate it. But I think for the purposes of this argument, um, I would rather be attacked on the things that I said in this book rather than the things that I've said in other books where, in fact, I think the issues are somewhat different. And I do not see in this particular case where it is that an argument in favor of redistribution could ever be summoned in a sensible and responsible fashion to support the grotesque forms of exclusion and state monopoly which are characteristic of the progressive industry. The progressives may not have known that they were being taken for a ride, but I could assure you the labor guys who worked with them knew exactly what they wanted. Monopoly power, not social justice. Thank you. All right, uh, let's open it up to questions now. Would you please uh, wait for the microphone to come and identify yourself and any affiliation you may have? Uh, let's start with this uh, fellow right here. Stand up. Hi, my name is Greg. I'm not affiliated with anyone other than the city of Washington, D.C. Um, Mr. Seidman, in 2003 when, the, uh, when Bush's tax cuts went through, uh, given that you didn't deserve your salary at Georgetown, uh, did you then increase your charitable contributions accordingly? Um, the answer to that question is yes. Um, but it is true that I don't um, regularly um, pay more taxes. Uh, I make charitable contributions, but I don't regularly pay more taxes than I owe. Um, uh, and so to that extent, to the extent the question was a got you question, you got me. Uh, I, I actually think, though, that that supports my own views about this. What, what that suggests is that people regularly have different views um, when they act as consumers and as private citizens than when they act as public citizens. So I vote for candidates who will raise my, my taxes, but I don't pay extra taxes. One of the problems with the classical liberal position is that it privileges the, the it systematically privileges the views people hold as consumers and, and systematically denigrates the views they hold as public citizens. And I don't think there's a reason in principle why when people have inconsistent preferences along those lines, one should be privileged over the other. Well, I don't think, can I answer that? I don't think it, it, it creates that sort of privileging. I mean, the whole prisoner dilemma games in favor of government organization essentially says in, in a private situation, I'm willing to knife somebody if I could get away with it, but in a public sense, I know that we're all better off to the extent that we avoid it. So rather than just talking about it in sort of vague and sort of loosey-goosey terms about differences and preferences, the basic technical argument is that if somebody wants to overcome a prisoner dilemma coordination game through the use of government, you have to think seriously, A, whether it exists, and B, whether or not the use of government force is going to achieve that particular goal. And, and also on the tax point, let me just mention one other point. 
which is that the, the Bush tax cuts did produce more revenue as our supply siders did say. What happens is that the rapacious Congress, which has so much power given its scope under the Commerce Clause, manages to spend $1.1 for every dollar in tax revenues that it increases. And so that the real problem in Washington, and God, when you go to the Capitol, you see it, is there's so much loose change hanging around in unappropriated property rights that the people who descend upon that place are like vultures. I mean, I went there this morning to give a lecture on credit cards, and I said the only issue we face is whether or not the people in this room can conspire to destroy the gains to the network industries that are created by voluntary action. And that's my view about Washington, is that essentially this is essentially a negative sum operation from start to finish. <laughs> Question for you, Professor Seidman. Yes. Well, well, Michael, Sorry. Use, use that microphone, Ronald. Uh, By the way, Mar uh, Ronald makes me look like a lefty, so you've got to know where this is coming from. <laughs> well, uh, I'll try to save you on this one. Thank you. Your characterization of uh, Professor Epstein as an originalist, how is that consistent with his views on slavery had he been living in, say, in 1850? Are you well, I, I don't think that's. Are you the, suggesting you would have? I think you ought to address that question to Professor Epstein. I mean, I, my, my my view is that if he were in 1850, he should not be an originalist, and he shouldn't be an originalist now. I, I note, by the way, that um, Richard. I mean, he's, it's up to him how to spend his five minutes of rebuttal time, but he spent virtually all of it addressing what I said I didn't want to talk about and none addressing what I did want to talk about. I mean, I, I, I guess I want to insist uh, that from his own perspective as a committed um, classical liberal, he ought not to be an originalist um, uh, because originalism may – well, let me just – do you want me to read from his book? I mean, he says um, – uh, the, the trouble with the progressive movement is that it failed as a matter of constitutional interpretation. Uh, a good theory of constitutional interpretation, a good theory of constitutional interpretation, um, well, that's actually not the point I wanted to reach. Um, um, any, any sensible theory of constitutional law must take the key terms in the document and give them the meaning that ordinary users would have attached to them when the provisions were drafted. I don't think from his perspective that's what he should think. Now, I do, when I said I read I'm a... I'm stunned. A, I'm stunned. Why would I think that? I don't know why you would think it. No, uh, why wouldn't I think that? Because what the, what the framers wrote in the document might or might not comport with classical liberal principles. No, no, and, my, and if they don't, then it would seem to me that you ought to be committed to the principles rather than to what a bunch of people at a particular historical time happened to put in a particular Michael, document. Uh, Maybe, I, I may not have spent a huge amount of time in the reply, but I think I did say it. I did not pick clauses at the Constitution at random. I did not say what I want to do is to explicate and to defend the fugitive slave clauses in the Constitution, although as an originalist it seems clear that you're bound to return them, and many judges when faced with that actually resign their commissions rather than carry out such an odious task. 
But what I did do is I said that the provisions that have lasted in the Constitution, the ones that receive the greatest respect, are those which have classical liberal overtones. That's why you as a First Amendment lawyer actually worry about whether or not a tax which is going to be put on the media will shift it from left to right. Um, there's a long tradition in First Amendment law which says we do not redistribute wealth through regulation or taxation between one kind of journal and another kind of journal. It's because once you really care about the substantive commitment, the only way you'll be able to explicate them is to say that the commitments can be limited for two and only two reasons. One of them is to control against externalities, yelling fire in a crowded theater, saying charge against a group of hapless infants, or to deal with the collective action problems. You could tax a newspaper to build the public roads on which it sits. And it seems to me that once we understand that, and we understand the clauses that I'm looking at, the duty is for you to explain where's the wedge. What is it that I have said about the clauses which in effect is inconsistent with a classical liberal position or is incorrect with respect to the interpretation? Have I misread Gibbons and Ogden, for example? Have I? You know, I think that, Richard, it's very hard to pin down on this. I'm and not hard. I'm being let, as let me, let me, Richard, let me finish, okay? He's very hard to pin down, and I think the fact that he's hard to pin down is a product of what I take to be his own ambivalence about it. So if I understand what he just said correctly, I think what he said was he's an originalist about the clauses of the Constitution that are that reflect his classical liberal views. Nope, that's didn't not say being that. an originalist at all. I didn't say that. I said I am at this particular point defending it with other clauses. I will use originalism to say what they mean and then use every intellectual power at my hand to say that they ought to be repealed or eliminated. Well, but, um, and, what, but what you're doing, in effect, is you're saying, in effect, if I've got a political philosophy and I don't believe in originalists, then there's no clause that bounds me. And so I could start over from everything. I'm saying, in effect, there are religionist constraints. I do not wish at this particular point to defend them. I would, if somebody asked me to construe them, I'd do it exactly the same way as I did with these clauses. And then I would add the fact is that if they're gone, I don't wish to revive them because I don't want to spend my energy bringing back things which I think ought never to have been. But I understood if they were still there, it would be perfectly legitimate as a matter of doctrine. I understand the point. I'm just not making the mistake. Todd. Todd Katziana from the Heritage Foundation. Let me see if I can clarify uh, at least your, your point, Professor, and, and, and what I understand uh, uh, Richard Epstein is saying. I don't understand, and, and neither does I think he, the, the inconsistency between a, a classical liberal and constitutionalism. It seems to me classical liberals believe in constitutionalism, and in so believing in the protections uh, the the uh, special nature of the American experiment was a written constitution, uh, one that was relatively fixed with a supremacy clause, but one that also recognized that we may not have gotten it exactly right and did allow for uh, amendments. So specifically, what is it about the classical liberal view that uh, didn't agree with the enterprise of constitutionalism and particularly written constitutions as an improvement on the theory of, of the British Constitution? Well, th thank you for asking the question because I think you, you've really put the question very clearly and so it, it allows me to give what I hope will be a clear response. Um, whether a classical liberal should favor constitutionalism depends on the constitution that you're talking about. So a classical liberal, I think, would not favor the Soviet Constitution and would not favor obedience to that written document um, because the 
that constitution is not classically liberal. Um, I would have thought that classical liberals would favor not constitutionalism, but classical liberalism. And the overlap between classical liberalism and any given constitution uh, is a contingent fact. And as it happens in the case of our constitution, a disputed fact. Um, but the dispute, again, seems to me, that dispute seems to me to be profoundly beside the point. Michael, uh, there's nothing wrong with wearing two hats. Wearing a hat as a constitutionalist to determine as a legal positivist what the Constitution says and then disagreeing with parts of it because they don't conform with your moral vision or whatever other criterion for you're going to bring to critique it. And I think that one can, with perfect consistency, uh, wear both hats. Roger, um, it is a matter of current dispute in our culture whether judges should follow originalist or non-originalist methods of interpretation. Um, many opinions... By I thought Dworkin settled that. We're all originalists now, he said. Well, uh, he, can, can, can I make uh, one on little, that and many other subjects, he was wrong. Um, really? Let me, let me give like, sort of I, one... Uh, I was going to mention this before, and, and let me sort of mention it now. <clears throat> Michael and I are actually on the same side on the question of executive power. Roger's on the other side, interestingly enough. Yes. In the park. And what I did, in effect, in my Wall Street Journal period was to go through a very patient textual analysis explaining how it goes and saying, in effect, that the last thing that we want to have happen in this area is some president with a living constitution ideas who believes that he could disregard any foreign treaty that we enter into or any congressional mandate because the commander-in-chief is a power on steroids. Michael agrees with that. It seems to me the most powerful way in which to do this is that's a set of designs which they got right. Notice I, I, I'm trying to be textually originalist. I'm not quarreling with any portions of that I might. The interesting feature about this is that, as far as I can tell, Congress has a lot of trump cards there, which it doesn't have in the regulation of economic liberty. So your textualist will give you more power over war and peace than it will over the economy. Now, how does it get wrong? It gets wrong in exactly the same way in both places. What happens, one of the scandalous, abusive uses of, of Jackson and Brennan and so forth on the Commerce Clause is they take the word plenary, which Justice Marshall used, when to say a power is plenary meant that there was no power in opposition to it, and then turn it around to say that a power which is plenary is unlimited, so it covers everything. That's exactly what the president is doing here. It's amazing. He goes back to this word plenary and says, well, since I'm the commander-in-chief, I have plenary power, and he's doing with the executive power what it turns out the, the, the liberal court has done with respect to the Commerce Clause. He's saying it's a power, and therefore it's absolutely unlimited and unbounded. And, and it seems to me that the great difficulty of constitutional interpretation is how is it when you create a system of checks and balances, you prevent some guy from taking the thing which is sort of like this and pushing it like this. That's what they did with the Commerce Clause, and he'd applauded for reasons I know not why. Um, and on the other hand, on executive power, he's absolutely right to insist that this is where we want to be, and we certainly don't want to run that way. Well, I don't think the president, if I may defend him, and I'm rarely doing that these days, uh, is, is arguing for plenary power. He is arguing for inherent power, and there is a difference between the two. And in fact, it was brought out clearly in the Inree Sealed case 
the FISA appeal court issued yeah. in 2002. And as you'll see my letter in the Wall Street Journal, uh, I spell that out in some detail. Yeah, and, and by the way, I mean, <laughs> the plenary stuff comes up every bit as often as the inherent in this debate. Okay. Let now, me just say I'm delighted to see the two of you arguing with each other. I think that's I'm going to uh, stay so completely out of this. This is in the Chicago tri tradition, as you know, Michael. Uh, there are no questions that are ultimately settled. Let's go to the back of the room. I see Dana way back there. If you could stand up, please. Oh, Dana Brown. Hi. I can see this Q&A session is going to go on a little longer than normal because it's getting fun. Um, Dana Berliner, Institute for Justice. I, I was actually interested in a lot of what you were talking about and how progressives rewrote the Constitution had to do with federalism. Do you know or do you think that progressives also rewrote state constitutions? Um, basically, they tried, but it was much less dramatic because, in general, if you change something in this, that, or the other state, it affects one and not many. Uh, the, one of the reasons why we got some of the federal power is certainly in the late part of the 19th century, there were very strong state assertions of power over interstate transactions, which led to a strong reaction and the creation of the Interstate Commerce Commission, for example. So that happened there. And, and there's no doubt, look, um, you want to look at, just take a random case in Connecticut Supreme Court known as Kilo against the city of New Hampshire, uh, of, of New London, and ask whether they rewrote the state constitution on public use in that particular case. I mean, they did a job on it, right? And if you wanted to take something like Mount Laurel, you would see it as well. Most of those things tend to fail because the exit right is a sufficient power to stop it. And the really insidious stuff is when they write the state constitutions over again to say that anybody who wants to leave has to pay a tariff equal to the amount that we would confiscate from them if we were allowed to keep them here. And those provisions have been upheld, in, particularly with insurance. So the answer is yes. Um, this is a battle which is fought on every frontier. Okay, uh, yes. Um, I'm Mike Lieberman with the Education Policy Institute. I have a question for Mr. Seidman, but I'd like Richard's reaction. Uh, I used to work as a labor negotiator for school boards, and sometimes we would get an agreement, say around midnight. First, before we bargained, we'd agree nobody would go public until there was an agreement or impasse. So we get an agreement at midnight. Nothing is said to the public. The teacher union ratifies it the next day, the board next afternoon, the school board that evening. Now in political terms, you have adopted 50 public policies without any public input whatsoever as a result of a state bargaining law. Do you have any problem with that constitutionally? I, um, I actually don't have a view about that. Oh, I mean, but I, I do. I, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, well, um, you know, you know, I'll, what was going through my, through my mind actually as you were saying this was that you were describing something like the way the United States Constitution ended up getting adopted. That is to say, by people meeting in secret, doing something that was not legally permissible. Um, but, I, I, you know, on, on a lot of uh, – um, a, a lot of Richard's views about um, what is good policy and what's bad policy, um, I, I think there's a uh, – actually a considerable overlap. So there's a lot of 
progressive stuff, um, especially from the early 20th century that I wouldn't defend. I think it, it was foolish. There's, there's some that I would defend, and which I'd be glad to say what um, if, if we wanted to get down to that level. Um, but one th- and, but I, on, on a fundamental level, I do agree that probably the, the, the best way of dealing with, with uh, moral luck and redistributive problems is um, through progressive taxation. I think one thing he doesn't take into adequate account of is the political constellation of forces at any given moment. So um, sometimes, uh, because there is such a thing as politics, um, we have to be satisfied with the second best solution. Can I answer? Uh, let me answer your question first and then respond to him. The great structural weakness in our Constitution is, although we're pretty good in dealing with how you regulate private parties, it's much weaker in the question of how the government runs its own affairs. Um, and the bigger the government becomes and the more affairs it runs, the more patent that problem is. My basic constitutional provision, I wrote this thing in the Cato Journal, I'm happy to say, uh, now close to 20 years ago, was that I'm in favor of, and I don't know if you can get it out of the text, I mean, of what I call the inverse takings clause, which is, nor shall public property be given to private parties without just compensation, right? And one of the things that happens, if that's the correct policy or law, and remember, it's a little bit of both, it's very shaky, uh, is that the state should never create a monopoly in opposition to itself. That is, it's unconstitutional to have a public union to whom it gives monopoly rents at the expense of all taxpayers. So what they have to do is essentially insist on competitive bargaining just the way we insist upon competition when we do other kinds of supply contracts. And I think that's certainly a sound political principle, and this is one on which no matter where you go in the originalist stuff, it's very tricky to do this. It's a gap in the Constitution. There are arguments that can be made, but they're very close. And in answer to sort of Michael's question about this on the second best question, one of the reasons why we have second best politics is we have fourth best constitutions. That is, if in fact you've got a regime in which you can get specialized benefits through regulation of this, that, or the other industries or collective bargaining negotiations, you're going to go for that which gives it to your interest group as opposed to a more comprehensive scheme of income redistribution based upon differentials in wealth. And in fact, you would, if you stopped all this nonsense and went back to the pre-37 solution where redistribution through taxation was generally okay and these specialized laws were not, you would find that you would actually do better. How much progressivity would you get? You would learn, I think, essentially the lesson that we did learn starting with the 91% rates in the Eisenhower years going forward. All the best tax people I know say, if you're going to play progressivity, once you get over around 30 32%, it's a mugs game even for the progressives. It, it doesn't do you any particular good. And so that was what your political equilibrium would be. And by the way, that's exactly what it is on taxes, except, of course, for the special appropriations, Medicare, Medicaid, and so forth, in which... You know, God knows why we ever started down that road. I mean, I thought Social Security was dead unconstitutional in 1935, and I believe that everything that has happened has proved the wisdom of that judgment. Um, yes, right here, sir. Wait, wait for the microphone, please. Mm-hmm. Roman Bueller used to be a counsel for a Committee of Congress, but currently unaffiliated. Implicit in this debate, perhaps, is the, the idea that uh, somehow the country went wrong. Uh, when the progressives uh, hijacked the Constitution. Well, that's a better title for the book. Yeah, go ahead. Mm. And, and my question is, uh, going from here, uh, if we in fact did go wrong, uh, is the better solution to try to undo 
the uh, a progressive uh, revision of the Constitution uh, through different appointments to the court, which of course depends on the political environment, or are we better served by going back to a uh, checks and balances theory and to perhaps try to uh, reverse the consequences of the 17th Amendment and, and create an institution in Washington that's accountable to the states? I mean, that's the one that gave direct election to the senators? Yes, correct. Um, that was a big change, and probably for the worst, at least in terms of the, the balance. Look, my answer to that question is it is the great unsolved question of constitutional interpretation. What do you do when there's been a mistake? Um, do you follow down the path? Do you try to correct? Do you do radical surgery, gradualism, and so forth? And I'm willing to listen to any and all arguments. The reason you write a book like this, I think I stated in the, in the, in the, in the preface, I do not believe that radical discontinuous change is feasible in the American system so long as Georgetown Law School does not have a majority of Republicans in it. I mean, and that's a long time, long time. But I do think, in effect, that the political debate will influence the way in, uh, on constitutionalism, will influence the way in which all people in all branches of government work. And what happens is you get enough small incrementalism, it will start to make a difference. And in terms of the corrective philosophy, I, I'm actually quite different from my originalist or, or my basic philosophy. I do not think that you can have radical distensions on certain things. I think you could have them on others. So let me give you an illustration. I, I don't think there's anything that you can do to get rid of a social security program when you've got millions of people over 65 who would be destitute if you wanted to put that into the place. On the other hand, a rule which says all collective bargaining agreements shall be null and void or shall not be renewable and they expire at the end and now are back to a competitive labor market is something which I think would work rather well. And we're getting there in the private sector anyhow. So it, it, you really have to pick your spots on when settled expectations are powerful or not and when not. And I'm, you know, it's a different discussion from this one. But you don't get into that discussion if we live in this make-believe world that they never did rewrite anything because it's all a matter of some non-originalist view, which means that commerce and manufacturers, instead of being in opposition, are really synonyms, which we discover only 150 years after the document was written. If, if I could, I, I, I think what you've just heard is an illustration of, of uh, why I think Professor Epstein is ambivalent about this and why I think there is still hope for him. Um, <laughs> because uh, um, if, if Professor Epstein were a thoroughgoing originalist, I think what he would have to say is no, Social Security is unconstitutional and therefore it should be abolished immediately. Let the heavens fall. No, no, um, wait, no. That's what, in other words, sometimes he's, he's, sometimes he's prepared to say, well, that's what the Constitution means but we're better off not following what it means. Um, I think he ought to uh, uh, say that more often than he does. Um, let me say what I said, because I didn't say that. I, I said, the originalist question is, what did the document mean and how do we interpret it? I said, when you start to make mistakes, anybody who wants to take fiat justitia ruit column is a madman. Um, the question is, how do you make peace with past errors is the single hardest question in dealing with the system. I have to face that dilemma because I think we've made errors and I see the serious dislocations with respect to them. Michael doesn't have to face that error problem because there's no errors in his world, right? And I, so that, no, I, I mean, well, if there are, then you have to do the no same thing. If there's an error, like, what would you do with Plessy v. Ferguson? I mean, if, if, if it was wrong on originalist grounds, wrong on lots of grounds, but presumably you would make the judgment desire that even though it's settled, it's terrible, 
it's much too restrictive, much too state dominant. Let's knock the thing out, and then you'd fight over techniques. Um, so, I mean, I don't think there's any difference between us, and I don't see why an originalist has to commit suicide uh, when it turns out my job is to clean up your messes, and now you're saying, well, the way in which you clean up my mess is to make a bigger mess of your own. I, that's just not the way I want to do that. I, I, I actually now just really don't understand what Professor Epstein's position is. I thought an originalist uh, was obligated to obey the original meaning of the Constitution, whether or not it produced a good result. No, no. Now he's telling us, no, when it produces a mess, uh, no, no, we don't I have to obey. Say that. The problem is, Richard, we are in disagreement about what produces messes. No, 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 that's not the problem. The problem is, once somebody has done something which is wrong under an originalist standing, what do you do in the second iteration? And an originalist and says you obey the Constitution. That, no, and the originalist only says on this thing, what you should have done when you make the initial move. There is a wide disagreement of what you do after the second error has taken place. It's the same thing. A train goes off the rails. You can't continue to act as though it's on the rails. Everybody has to cut and scrape and be somewhat more quote-unquote pragmatic. This is not a new position. Michael, if you go back and look what I said in the Takings book in 1985, I said there are two different tasks. One is getting it right the first time, and the second task is figuring out what to do after everybody else has gotten it wrong. I haven't changed my views. It's just that I can't conceive of why using a label originalism or anything else means that the same technique has to apply with respect to programs that have already been put into place where massive dislocations take place as opposed to stopping them before they begin. Okay, back there. Questions? We're going to just take uh, two more questions and try to make them brief and the answers as well. Right. Uh, Brian Bishop, and I want to uh, perhaps give slight comfort uh, to Professor Seidman with a question to uh, Richard, which is the common knock on uh, originalism, and you may suggest I'm striding a fine line between originalism and textualism, is that here you have, for instance, in Lochner, the, the state statute being struck down on the kind of, in essence, the unenumerated civil liberty uh, of contract, and that somehow this strikes as conservative judicial activism and is not really originalism. Now, philosophically, it, it perhaps classic liberalism enlightened the writing of the Constitution, and that's the anchor. But uh, I mean, am, am I uh, creating a, a discussion in the way you would in this regard, or how do you uh, respond to charges that uh, this uh, that Lochner was not conservative judicial activism? Well, I mean, what I would say is that broad constitutional prohibitions ought to receive broad meanings. But there is, in fact, and I've written on this lately, a second-tier issues here. The whole problem with respect to the Due Process Clause, which is now systematically and widely misread, in fact comes because of the earlier decision in which everybody gutted the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. And so what happened was, if you look at the cases, the substantive protections that were thought to be covered by Privileges or Immunities all of a sudden get read quite consciously into liberty. And if, in fact, you had done the Privileges or Immunities stuff right, the Due Process Clause would be a process clause. But the guys who lost the first battle said, you may have stolen it from me the first time, but I'm not going to let you steal it from me the second time, overtly and consistently. And I have no question that you know liberty of contract within a certain element was one of the enumerated privileges and immunities as we understood that clause. But all of American substantive rights under the 14th Amendment has been distorted beyond recognition by, in effect, the wrong decision in the slaughterhouse. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, but clearly distorted. Um, yes, right here. Yes, I hear me. 
We're going to have one more question after this, then we're going to break for lunch. Ken Hoffala. I have a question for Prof Professor Sedman. Uh, you mentioned that originalist is uh, compelled to uh, follow unjust principles in the Constitution. Um, aside from the three-fifths clause and issues that were left to the several states, such as slavery and suffrage, what specific unjust principles are there in the U.S. Constitution? Uh, well, I'll give you a specific example that uh, comes to mind because it, it's another <laughs> source of disagreement with Professor Epstein. I think um, uh, it's very clear some people dispute this, but I think it's very clear as an original matter uh, the framers meant to uh, uh, allow uh, racial segregation. And indeed, the, uh, um, some of the key people who voted for Brown versus Board thought so also. Um, and the, the conference notes um, now reveal, for example, that uh, at least Justice Jackson and probably Justice Frankfurter also thought that as a matter of originalist constitutional interpretation, Plessy was right and Brown was wrong. I, for one, am very glad that uh, uh, Justice Jackson was not an originalist and decided Brown the way he did. Um, it's a very complicated question. Um, first of all, Plessy was not right in its extravagant reading of what the police power conducted. And it raises very different questions under the three portions of it. There's a miscegenation portion, a common carrier portion, and a public school portion of the thing. And, and certainly on miscegenation laws, the thought that liberty of marriage would be overcome on these phony moral justifications is dead wrong. But there's something else, Michael, which I think one has to understand. It's, again, the problem of alternative imperfections. It's quite clear that at the time that you had segregated schools, you had systematic violation of every protection that was contained in the 15th Amendment, for example, so that the political process at the state level was corrupted. Now you're back to the question, if you've got one set of serious blunders with respect to the way in which state institutions work, do you make another set of errors to offset it? And my justification for Brown would be essentially compensating errors. If you've messed up one portion of this document beyond all recognition, or to put it to you otherwise, if the state governments had been consistent and honest with respect to the way in which the franchise had been organized and in the distribution of political power, if you had segregation, it would have been like at Cornell in 1969, and the world would have been different. So I quite agree, but it's the failure to enforce the original set of guarantees which made the reaction in Brown the absolute necessity that it was. And I don't know whether I would want to write a second best opinion, but that's the way you think about it. I would have written the Warren opinion, because my view is if you write a second best opinion, you'll never have the moral traction to go. Just as you needed unanimity to overcome it, I think you need, given the previous error, a little lack of candor on that issue as well. And remember, Brown was an intellectual shambles as, a, as, as an opinion, but it did the job. Okay, one last question right up there. Very short question to both speakers. Have state Identify yourself, please. I'm Don DeKiefer with DeKiefer and Horgan here in Washington. Have state legislatures become irrelevant? Boy, oh boy, no. <laughs> I mean, just look at the amount of business they turn out and the amount of mischief they do. Mark Twain is still applicable at the state level. No man's life or property is safe so long as the state legislature is in session. <laughs> look at Kilo. I mean... Right. Look, Michael, at, look at Vermont and Wisconsin in uh, campaign finance. I mean, it's, you know, look, remember this about the New Deal. It said the federal government comes first, but by getting rid of the various substantive guarantees, it actually expanded the amount of state legislation that could take place. 
Um, so they cared about priority, but they would certainly, if there was no actually preemption issue, state legislation was encouraged, and indeed things like the Anti-Injunction Act in 1937 made it impossible to attack state legislation in federal court, which created all sorts of real incentives to do grotesque things. All right. With that, uh, we're going to draw this to a conclusion. Uh, you can pick up a copy for, uh, what is it, fifteen ninety-five? No, 13 outside. 13. Oh, good. Right outside. And Richard will autograph. Do join us for lunch. And let's uh, thank uh, Richard and Michael. Uh, and Michael. Thanks a lot.